0: Hey,
1: everyone. Welcome to the Mass Construction Show with today's guest, William Buddy Christopher, Commissioner of the Inspectional Services Department in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Jill Kelly, and this is the podcast about all things construction in Massachusetts and beyond. For folks that don't know, the Inspectional Services Department encompasses the billing department, along with health, housing, and a number of other agencies. Today, Buddy discusses ISD's philosophy and how to change from a department of no to is there a way we can make this work? We dive into what's happening in the neighborhoods, including an area of Boston, which I had never heard of before, Glubber's Corner. We also talk building code, zoning code, podium construction, fire safety, and more. Enjoy the show. Buddy Christopher, welcome to the Mass Construction Show. Uh, Pleasure to be here, Joe, thanks. Uh, I should say Commissioner Christopher, uh, commissioner of ISD in the city of Boston, inspectional services department for folks that don't know. AKA, not actually AKA, but uh, building department, as well as housing and a number of other places. Actually, maybe for the people that don't know ISD, just a quick, what departments follow one under ISD? I-
0: ISD is made of five major components. It's the building department, which most people are familiar with. There's the housing department, which deals with all our, our residential housing situations. There's the weights and measures division which um, is the calibrator of all the scales and gas tanks and uh, measurements uh, throughout the city. There's uh, the environmental department, which deals with a lot of uh, very strange situations, unhealthy situations, rodent situations. Um, And then there's the health department, which deals with uh, primarily restaurants, anything to do with the processing or ingestion of food. Throughout the city of Boston, and then there's the the legal department, which is which is our own department. Uh, and most recently, we've added uh, animal care and control to our uh, to our division.
1: For the folks that don't know, uh, I want to say Twitter is the only thing I see you really using social media wise. But um, at WPC100, I don't know how you got a nice te- <laughs> uh, handle like that. Uh, but you're going to often see the dog photos,
0: yes, right? Which is the animals that. Uh, were are either turned in or... Um... Well, it's, it's a funny thing. Social media you know, is, is a major part of what we do, but there's a whole section of people that aren't involved in social media. So what, what we do at ISD is every, anytime we put up anything either on Twitter or our Facebook, um, a lot of people will share those just to spread the word out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've actually had some amazing stories of dogs that were lost or cats that were lost, and we put it up on social media, and sure enough, we get a phone call uh, and that's, that's some of the better parts of, yeah. of our day. No, I love it. Um, so if you don't know, this podcast slash
1: show is about the construction industry as a whole. And it's really meant for you know a person, if they're a super or a field engineer or a project manager or PX somewhere. Um, and you know, I know personally myself as a super I've always wanted. And as a, working at the AGC in the building department... Uh, Love podcasts, but never could find anything that really um, talked about the industry. Never mind the industry in Massachusetts. So this is a chance for I think people to kind of see what else is out there because you get mm-hmm. pigeonholed within a company. And uh, I remember my times as a building official. I'd be walking around and there'd be a super or a PM and say, "Hey, how do you do that?" So um, this is about construction as a whole, and then what job types are out there, what opportunities yeah. are out there. So I guess first off, how'd you get in? to the business in general, and then how did you end up being commissioner?
0: Well, I was very lucky. When I was at a very young age, somebody introduced me to Antonio Gaudi, an architect um, in, in Barcelona. And I was thrilled and amazed by his work. Um, at the time I was, um, I think I was in junior high school, and I fell in love with mechanical drafting. I was not a great student, um, but math and geometry were things I always understood. So, uh, at the time, I wanted to be a draftsman. That was, that was my goal in life. And then as life went on, I, I had a number of opportunities. Um, so then I uh, ended up going to the Boston Architectural College, which was a night school, which was really built about around tradespeople. School taught you history, theory, and criticism. But it was, uh, at the time, a five-year program. And I made it a point that every year I changed my job. Um, I worked construction. I did ornamental steel. I uh, was a project manager on a number of projects. You're talking physical. Physical work. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't believe anybody can be an architect unless they've actually been in the trenches to understand what it takes to place a rebar. And what does it mean? In when,
1: ornamental, you're talking welding, grinding. Absolutely. Uh, oh, wow. All right. I had no idea. Uh, it, Learned was,
0: something uh, new. Um, it was a firm. I forget the name now. I think it was Novelty. It was on Dorchester Street in, in South Boston. But I have got a great opportunity to to learn to use machinery and understand the accuracies of things. Um, And as time went on, I I started working in some architectural offices, some very big offices to begin with, United Engineers and Constructors. Um, These were, you know, multinational uh, companies. And I was the office boy. I mean, I made prints, got coffee, and if I was lucky enough, I got to trace something because in those days it was all hand-drawing. Um, as life went on, I was always uh, always enthused about technology. So as computers became more and more to, to the world, I, I'm self-taught. I've never really taken a course in any computer system, but I am very proficient now in, in CAD, AutoCAD, Rivet. Uh, SketchUp is still one of my favorites. And at some point as, as I was working, and I worked for companies that were two-man shops to companies that were, you know, 600 people. Uh, the latter parts of my career, after I became a registered architect, um, I started really managing companies, some pretty big companies. Uh, and I did that up and down the East Coast. Um, and then finally, you know, the one dream of everybody is to open your own shop. And I made it a point that, you know, I, I understood the basics of things. I understood the basics of construction and the synthesize problems. So my shop was never about being one of the high-end fancy designers, you know, for the movie stars. I like to solve things and and make things simple. Um, I fell madly in love with codes. Um, I read them the way people read novels, and and I really enjoy reading it because there's a logic and a methodology that you can really become part of. So I had my own office for 10 years uh, in Dorchester, and we did some of the smallest projects I ever did was to uh, design a handrail for a woman that had degenerative arthritis in her hand and make it work. when I was at the BAC I was introduced for design for the physically and mentally handicapped labeled that at the time very different today so I was always an advocate for that I always thought it was interesting to make you know challenging situations part of mainstream construction and design um, so I did that for 10 years and then you know um, Mayor Walsh was elected um, I did work for under Mayor Menino for a couple of years in the uh, public facilities department and that was my first introduction to municipal life. Um, and I thought it was very strange um, how things happen and, and the way they happen. Uh, so I worked there and left there, and then that's when I had my office for the, for the next 10 years um, or so. And then when, when Mayor Walsh was elected, he, him and I, we, we know each other and we were talking, and he asked me if I'd be interested in being commissioner. Um, by this point, I had 30 years of permitting at ISD. I was just about to say, I mean, we're, we're talking... You were down there two, three times a week, right? Oh, absolutely. Because, again, you know, having a passion to read codes and to understand how they're put together, um, I was lucky enough to recognize footnotes long before other people did. So, you know, understanding the building code and understanding how footnotes can actually reverse a decision that's in the base code uh, became very important, but it became very uh, uh, good for me economically because I could solve problems. I could understand it. Uh, I built a a decent relationship with uh, most building departments here in New England, um, registered in five states. Um, So I I got to see a lot of different worlds. But the one thing that I understood was the loopholes in the code and the loopholes in zoning. And I always had the prescription that, um, you know, the rules were written and if you can play by the rules and succeed, then you're doing the right thing. And I was very lucky and knowledgeable at doing that. Uh, mayor Walsh at the time, uh, he was in a very different industry as uh, as was I, understood that I thought that way. So when, when he became uh, the mayor, he asked me if I'd be interested in being the, he asked me if I'd, if I'd work at ISD, and I said, only if I'm the commissioner. Uh, and he said, absolutely. So in the first six months or so at ISD, it was um, very interesting because a lot of my clients and people that knew me thought It was going to be, you know, they knew the commissioner, they were going to get what they want. And it was absolutely quite the reverse because first thing I did was shut down an awful lot of the loopholes, the inconsistencies, um, the ways to achieve things that were not really the intention of the code. Um, Then I had the really good fortune of being able to look at a lot of these decisions and zoning issues and realize some of them didn't make logical sense to us if we were trying to develop an economic base here in the city of Boston Uh, So I've been, I think, very instrumental in modifying uh, some of the zoning interpretations, not the zoning itself, so that we're able to achieve things. Uh, Some of the examples are, you know, in the original zoning code, if the use group wasn't labeled, it was a forbidden use group. And I couldn't understand how I could put a gymnasium in a certain location, but I couldn't put a spinning studio or I couldn't have a yoga studio. So we've worked very hard to deal with that. Um, There seemed to be an awful lot of redundancy in permits and licensing. So we tried very hard to cut that down so that it became more of a logical process to achieve success. And then there were, you know, the architectural things that, you know, the physical layout of, of the building department and where people were or where people needed to be. There were obvious departments that need some quiet and solitude. There are other departments that really need to be right in the public's eye as as they come in. Um, So I made a lot of physical changes. Um, We looked at the business practices at ISD because the mayor was adamant that, I mean, the one statement he made to me in the beginning was he goes, if we have to have somebody broker the process of getting a permit for a citizen in Boston, there's something wrong with the permit system. It doesn't mean that there aren't projects that need the the guidance and assistance of somebody who really does understand the process. But smaller projects should be able to be done by the homeowner or the small contractor. And Mayor Walsh understands that in great detail. So we worked very hard to analyze zoning. We initially broke zoning into two pieces because uh, at at the time when when I first went into the job, um, a dormer got the same level of analysis as a 60-story office building. And we understood that that was slowing down the process for everyone. So the first thing we did was separate, we created a subcommittee for one and two family and small businesses, um, which immediately freed up a lot of time for the primary projects to take place at City Hall. Now, and that,
1: just so everyone's clear, yeah. listen, that's what is the Thursday night? It was the Thursday that's night? It's the Thursday night. And yes. then when you're saying a different de- section or department, you're talking. Um, if you need to go to the Board of Appeals, correct? Yes, absolutely. If you have to go to the Board of Appeals, you had a dormer and a 60-story high-rise, you were lumped into the same category. Absolutely. And you're saying you segregated those two and said there's no reason for Sally and John Doe to be going to City Hall to you exactly. know, battle it out with the attorneys and everybody else. Now, you actually moved that
0: to ISD, is it still I'm, there? We moved it-, it to ISD, um, easier to get to, there's parking. Uh, We also moved it to an evening situation so that people who were doing the small dormers or the small projects didn't have to take time out of their workday to go into into City Hall to wait for that process to go through. Uh, We saw an immediate uptick in both uh, areas of of zoning. The people that were doing the small additions and dormers on their houses, um, it was much easier for them because they didn't need a professional to come in and make their presentation. They do. We have attorneys and architects making presentations all the time, but a homeowner could come in and talk their way through. We have representations there from the, the BPDA and from ISD, so sometimes an interpretation or a question can be answered on the spot. This also freed up more time for the much larger projects on Tuesday mornings at City Hall where more analysis was needed because the projects weren't just changing the line of a roof. They could, in some cases, be changing the direction of a community or a city. So they were able to get the attention that they needed. Um, that's been in place now for four years, and it's been nothing but a success story. People tell me all the time now they're more willing to do that edition because if their budget is $10,000, they're not spending half of it on, on a professional um, uh, order to make their presentation because the form doesn't need that. Um, so overall, we, we've made changes like that to make things a, a lot simpler. Um, we've looked at the, the paperwork and the way we fill things out. But I think the biggest thing is, is, is the cultural change. Uh, prior to going to ISD, I always thought of that department as the department of no. Every time I went in there, the answer was no. Um, sometimes I would have to go back multiple times and get repeated no's. Um, we have the philosophy, you get one bite at the apple. So when you submit your drawings... We have a pre-review process now to make sure that all the pieces that you need to do the review are there. Sometimes that can save you 30 days because in the past, if you were missing a key element, say you were missing your site plan, which you know homeowners don't know they need a, a site plan. In the old way, it used to be you would submit your package, and then two weeks, three weeks, four weeks later, you'd get a letter saying this can't be reviewed until you have a site plan. With the pre-review process now, the, the desk counter looks at it and says, oh, you don't have a site plan. And they tell you that instantly, so you've just saved yourself a month of, okay. a, of time, which, you know, very simple. But
1: Invaluable, yeah.
0: It, it's also the idea that we want our, our reviewers and all of ISD staff, inspectors and administrative staff, to be more interactive. Um, you can take the philosophy of answering the question, or you can take the philosophy of answering the question with a little bit of direction. So the, the promise that, that, I, that I make to, to, the, to the city of Boston now is when you come there, you will leave with one or two things. You'll either leave with your permit or you'll leave with a clear understanding of how to get your permit. Um, I really enjoy it because the, the trades and, and all the design professionals in the world, they have some really good ideas that I think are it's invaluable not to listen to them. And they may have a, a way of doing something that, you know, may not be prescriptive, but it really does meet the the requirements of the code. The intent, right? The intent, absolutely. Um, We, you know, we advocate sometimes when someone brings us a very creative solution that is clearly in violation of the words in the building code, but does really follow the intent so that we will write a letter when they go to the state to appeal a decision based on building code that says that clearly this is a violation of uh, the building code but we do think that it's you know it does meet the Feet intention it. so it's, it's that kind of a philosophy we think that it, that is, is changed an awful lot okay. let's talk
1: trends okay, okay. Um, uh, I throw a sticky down in front of both of us 2015 city of Boston did 4.4 4 billion dollars worth of permits 2016 3.8 2017 5.7 billion dollars that's a lot of work uh, mm-hmm. having looked at the statewide permit numbers, that's pretty close to half of all the work that happens in the entire state. Um, so what you're seeing you know, is a pretty good guidance of what's potentially happening oh, in the state. So what are you seeing? Are you seeing, and th- this isn't, again, this isn't state-related, but are you seeing neighborhoods, particular neighborhoods, that you're really seeing some interesting stuff happening? Is there types of construction in certain neighborhoods uh, that you're seeing? <clears throat> Um, become more common, and unique? And I I didn't prep you for this, so... No, that's a very
0: comfortable question. It's a thing that we talk about all the time. Um, Yes, I think ISD, you know, as the commissioner, I think ISD has done a tremendous job on being able to be more efficient, uh, to be able to answer questions and move things forward. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that the mayor created a culture throughout the entire city. We seek out industries to come to our city now. Um, And it's not just the seaport. That's what everybody sees because Mm -hmm. of the great skyscrapers and things that are being built there. The growth is everywhere across the city. Um, In some ways, we're we're suffering from our own great success. Uh, We see housing markets uh, of prices and values that we never anticipated would ever happen. The mayor has put the mandate out there on housing. But in order for housing to exist, he fully recognizes that you've got to have an economic base of, of different uh, shops and products and industry education backgrounds. Um, some of the other things people don't think about is you've also got to have the police and the fire and the EMTs be, being able to support that. At the same time, he's trying very hard to make it a very interactive city. For the first time in, you know, City Hall's history, there's an event there every day and they're not formal events, they're casual events. But specifically to ISD, um, we have seen more growth uh, throughout the city um, and, and, and there isn't one neighborhood more or less. South Boston was inundated um, 10, 15 years back. Um, they're still developing in South Boston. Sometimes it's amazing to see projects that were are seven or eight years old being mm-hmm. rethought about because of, of new technologies and new trends. Uh, communities like East Boston right now are about to go through some major, major changes about what's happening. Uh, We see it West Roxbury and Rosendale. You know, those one- and two-family houses now all of a sudden are becoming 8, 20, 35 units. Um, It's a hard thing to guide through because the mayor has made it very important that we do not destroy neighborhoods. Um, South Boston just recently had its zoning rewritten. And I think, well, I know it's the first zoning that's been written in a real long time as far as a total district. Um, And I think it's really good zoning. Uh, We have... Once the zoning went into place, we put an iPod, which is a little more restrictive. To,
1: uh, explain that to you. How, so folks that don't know what an iPod is. Uh, so interim planning overlay district, right? Yes. And then what does that mean to the people that want to build in, in that area? Well,
0: the first response is that it's far more restrictive than the zoning is written, and that's quite true. Uh, we have adopted the idea that any project of a 1,000 square feet or greater is going to be reviewed by the Zoning Board of Appeals. Okay. And I'm going to interrupt for half, a second. Mm-hmm. So, I know Rosendale
1: went through an iPod a while ago, um, and now you're saying South Boston as of when? So, they decided to rewrite <coughs> South Boston zoning code, is it a year ago?
0: Or three years ago. Three years ago. And the iPod went into place? Last year, last year. and we just uh, uh, re-extended it for another year. Okay iPods are usually done before zoning changes, right, so that you can analyze what's going on and what's happening. In South Boston, it's the opposite. What, you know, and again, I think this is a very creative way to think about things. We've put the zoning into place, and before we let it go on its own path, we put this iPod iPod in place. So it's an overlay to make sure that the zoning that we have put into place will, in fact, achieve the goals that we've set out for. Um, where where we've got about another eleven months in in this iPod, uh, the trends we're seeing are that the zoning was right and it's good. So once we finish this um, study period, if you will, the goal is to release the the article back to its its normal state without the iPod and let that zoning flourish. Um, we're seeing it protect communities. We're seeing it identify those areas that we want for development because you really need the development to support the population. Um, I think overall it'll prove itself to be good, but we don't jump at things. We always try to deal with them, you know, as pilot projects or things like that. Yeah,
1: and I I have to imagine any time you're changing zoning, 100% of the people aren't going to be happy, right? That's true. So there are going to be people that aren't going to like it, and I think this might be a way to work through some of that mm-hmm. angst before it's one, of, one of the things we're
0: seeing is that people were afraid of the new zoning that they thought it would just open up development to no end so by putting this ipod into place it became very restrictive and what we're seeing is that the real zoning issues beyond the ipod are good are very good um, and they're proving that the zoning is right the massing is right the height is right the number of cars that are required is right. But before we let it go on its own path, we want it to have this ability to analyze it and make sure that it made sense so everybody gets a second look to make sure that it's going in the right direction. We've been very, uh, very fortunate. I think the data will prove itself at the end of next year that this is the right way to go about doing something. Um, The mayor also recognizes that the master planning of the entire city is very important. You know, we just finished the uh, J.P. Roxbury Analysis. We're going through the analysis now in Glover's Corner in Dorchester. And it's the most interactive process I ever saw. From a bureaucratic point of view, I was actually very afraid of it when we first started. I said, We'll never get anywhere if you have, you know, a committee of of 12 is tough to make a decision. Make it a committee of 500. But uh, the BPA has done uh, an unbelievable job uh, in presenting the information. And then being able to categorize it and analyze it so that they could reiterate it back to the community to make sure we were understanding what they were saying. So, I think overall, um, there are many parts to what the growth of the city is. Um, I think, and I don't think, I know that technology and construction has changed so much. I remember when um, steel studs were first being talked about, and there were so many people that didn't want to deal with them. Um, and they are so much part of our industry now. Uh, Prefabrication and modularization of different systems are becoming more and more part of the the larger construction picture. Um, th- there are hurdles to do that. I mean, how do you pre-design an electrical system for an entire building and have a UL rating? Uh, in the beginning, it was hard. It was hard to analyze because the, all the parts had UL ratings, but then it was the assembly, assembly did that. Yeah. Yep. So we're working through it. You know, we have really good partners in. The construction industry, uh, the unions are very much in 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 the throes of trying to figure this out with us. Um, all of the different industries that the manufacturers and the producers of these systems are also partners at the table. So it's not like somebody's coming up with a widget in their garage and throwing it out for the world to, to work with. We're all part of the discussion. Okay. So, let's. Uh talk
1: about some neighborhoods just in sure. general and again not to catch you off guard but mm-hmm. um so i'll look at right down the street from the Rosendale. they're going to take a certain street and make it um just straight pedestrians yes which i, I don't know if you're familiar with i like mm-hmm. it and then there's a slow street yep yep uh, trillium mm-hmm. brewery has got a kind of a pop-up happening mm-hmm. there um What is some just kind of cool or interesting thing you're seeing? Let's go your neighborhood, Dorchester, Savin Hill. Anything
0: unique going in there? Oh, absolutely there is. I mean, um, you look at uh, Glover's Corner as one area that uh, the dot block was going in. There was this lot that, I don't know how many acres it is, say two or three, that sat uh, with a, a smattering of little businesses in there, propane, storage things, gas stations, uh, a manufacturing place. But the vast majority of the sites are terrible. And someone had the courage and fortitude to say, I'm going to do a development there. Um, 15 years ago, nobody in in the neighborhood would have supported it. But today, people started looking at it because they were doing things like creating internal streets in a large development. Uh, The BPDA has been adamant that the streetscape be an interactive piece of our city and it creates growth, it creates interest. I think overall, um, the idea that people are now willing to listen because they actually see that development is not just about congestion. In a lot of cases, it actually solves traffic problems, enhances pedestrian uh, interaction, it makes uh, the quick stop at a, a, a store something that's easy to do. And so there's a whole marketplace that goes on there. I mean, who would have thought, you know, as, as little as six years ago that we would close Newbury Street on a Sunday?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I know the first go-around, everybody was nervous. It proved to be such a success. Um, it takes a lot of work. I mean, the traffic department has to figure out how to reroute things. The emergency people have to figure out still how to get to places. Um the thing that I noticed when I was down there was the quiet. All of a sudden, the street was very quiet when you were down there, and it was tremendous. I mean, there were the restaurants move out onto the street. There are, you know, street games being played. Um, people are just walking, and it can be bad weather, and people still appreciate it. So it says that people are more interested in um, some form of pedestrian interaction with the built environment. Yeah, it becomes almost,
1: I mean, Newberry Street always was kind of a destination, but even more, more of a ne- destination, Thinks
0: so are, right? hmm absolutely. Okay. Or like you take the JP Porch Fest, yeah. um, or we have now one being planned for this year, the Fenway Porch Fest. Okay. And all this is, is um, a couple of creative people got together, organized a bunch of musicians, organized a bunch of homeowners in the most cases, and these bands will play on their porches throughout the community. Right. What it does is, you know, it takes somebody from Dorchester and brings them over to JP, which they probably never would have went to before. They never had a reason. Now they have a festival that they're doing. It's low impact. It has high revenue because all the, the restaurants get to get a little bit of exposure. Uh, people get to see the you know uniqueness of, of a neighborhood. Um, people that know the Fenway know how beautiful the Fenway is. But we started putting art exhibits in the Fenway. Uh, in the beginning, oh, it can't be done, you know, Conservation Commission in the water. Everything that was done supported all of those events, but yet brought a whole layer of other people to the city. And that's what I, one of the things I, I see happening is the city actually appears smaller because everybody is going everywhere. Go look at the piers, you know, go look at Pier 4 on, uh, in East Boston. What a wonderful place to go. You want to play basketball? Let's go to East Boston. They have more basketball courts right along the water. Um, There is a whole piece of community requirements for the development of projects, that there be restaurants, that they be some sort of outdoor activity beyond, you know, like the Chapter 91, which requires an aquatic use. People are doing it because they're seeing it. We're seeing the advent of water taxis coming back and possibly being really viable this time. And so our waterways, you know, like the Charles River, has never been as clean as it is right now, and that takes investment on all parts. If our city wasn't growing at the rate that we're growing, we wouldn't have the resources in order to, you know, feed that engine to make sure these things happen. And it's cyclical: as the water gets better, more people come in; more people come in; more people want to live there. Um, I think the one, one of the biggest war cries I hear in a lot of these development, these cities that are these communities that are really developing, is that, you know. Why are all these people want to come here? Because for the first time, they're seeing all the attributes that you've known about in this neighborhood forever, and they come here and they see it. And they want to become part of it. So yeah. it's it's a double edged sword. Yeah,
1: I'll tell you. For the longest time, I felt that way. I mean, about East Boston. My mm-hmm. mom was from there. I remember always going there. Great food. I don't know how it is anymore. Javell's was my grandfather's like favorite oh, they, they restaurant. Uh, wonderful uh, you know. restaurants in East Boston. Um, in just the proximity across the water, I don't know if that's where they're talking about water taxis. Mm-hmm. I thought there might oh, yeah. even be, are they in place already? Or, or I don't know. I oh, don't, yeah, I there, don't are,
0: there are a small number of them that are in place. I mean, we have the big ferries, you know, that come up from um, Quincy and, and from Situate and things like that. And we have some that come from the North Shore. But these are small taxis that, you know, 10 people will just shoot right across the water on a, on a you know, beautiful sunny day. What, what, what a tremendous way to get to see the, the, the city. Um, it's not very expensive. It's quick. And it's kind of neat, and I think that's a lot of what's happening in our city. Is I mean, one of the most interesting projects that came into our, our city was a PER cat a cat cafe. Purr is the
1: name of it. it I'll I'll let you call it interesting. Yes. yes. I'll I'll, I'll mm-hmm. leave it at interesting. But it, it it's it's really
0: a good example of, of a lot of things. It was a, a, a business comp- a business concept that I wasn't familiar with. Brighton, right? Um, yeah. And, I mean, they're having problems. They're growing pains. It's a, it's a different industry. But when the woman came in talked to me about it, I just found it so intriguing. And I says, well, let's look at that. And, you know, the immediate reaction is, oh, the codes oh, won't allow it. Food and, you know, cats and animals. And we worked our way through it. And, you know, they do not prepare food there. But they are allowed to bring in food. They've actually forged a relationship with a cafe in the area supplies them with the food so now we have two industries that are blending together Um, when I did the research I found out these things are all over the world and they're tremendously successful but that that's a perfect example of industries that we don't know about coming in and looking at at things to do things in a way that that are different Um, the Eataly in downtown Boston Mm -hmm. what is it is it a supermarket? Is it a liquor store? Is it a restaurant? Is it a retail establishment? Is it a food court? <laughs> Is it a food court? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's located, you know, in Prudential Center. So, I mean, you've got all this uh, uh, pedestrian traffic and things. Um, the designers did a wonderful job. Our regulatory staff, the health department, I remember, was they were just so befuddled. They just, they'd never seen anything like this. Yeah. But rather than say no... We just kept working through the code and we, we took it apart and we analyzed it. It's that mytholo- meth- methodology again. I keep uh, Freudian slip with mythology because sometimes it appears that way. But uh, the methodology of, of achieving success through the building code is taking the time to read it. Um, you know, I, I look at the industries, I, I go to a lot of uh, trade schools and things to talk to young people about permitting. Because all too often, people forget what an important part that is of getting, you know, construction going. Um, and I explain to them all the time, you, the worst thing you can attempt to do is to try to memorize the building code. It's too deep, it's too nuanced, and it keeps changing. But to learn how to read the book, how, to, how it's organized and what you're looking for. Um, the bottom line I ask people all the time, are you sure you're asking the right question? Because if you ask the wrong question, you're gonna get an answer that may not be where you wanna go. But the reality of it is, is if you really dig down sometimes, um, the answers are self evident in, in the code. Uh, most people do not read them the way you and I do. Um, but I think that you know, if you're gonna be successful in, in the construction industry, I don't care if you're you know, delivering sheetrock, if you understand the product that you're doing and, and how it fits. Um, We're forever looking at at safer ways of doing things. You know, we have the burn permits now um, and things like that. And sometimes it's common sense things, but it's nice to have it reinforced. And if you read the building code, all of a sudden you're going to find out why you're doing something as opposed to just doing it because, you know, it's a repetitive thing. Um, I love it when I see someone who starts off as a laborer, you know before you know it they're they're a project manager and, and they're running their own jobs and then all of a sudden you see them on a major development team because they have such a wealth of knowledge about how things happen that they actually become really good implementers on the way things should happen. Yeah, You want to hear a great story?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, first job I was on out of college we didn't really have a need for laborers on site yet so we were hiring a third party I think they were SOS or Frontline one of those to clean our trailers and the laborer that would come out to clean our trailers, I got to know him pretty well. And one day he just happened to ask me, saying, like, hey, like, how do you read the drawings? Mm-hmm. We sat down, we went through it. Every time he'd come between clean the, the trailers, we'd like do a little more. Fast forward, he was able to get on with us. At the time I was, I won't say who because I don't want to tip it away, mm-hmm. but the company I was working for. We, we brought him on as a laborer because he seemed like a go-getter to be on our project. And then he was able to morph and do safety for us. And then became an assistant superintendent. Now he's a superintendent for one of the large
0: GCs in Boston right now. And, you know, I'm going to... I think it's a, it's a great thing. I think that, you know, as people go through the trades, I know that's the way that I came up. Um, because you get to see each step of the way. I remember some of the most interesting times is when I was an office boy. Cause I got to go in to meetings to deliver coffee, but I saw what was going on, or I got to talk to the project manager or, or the draftsman about what was important, or what, what is it you're doing? Um, if you can have that basic curiosity, I think you'll, you'll go far. I, I you know When I was trained, it was all still hand-drawn. CAD was just up and coming. Um, what you can do, you know, with computer-aided design now is, is absolutely phenomenal. I still sketch. I, I still try it. when I'm drawing something, I, I draw it by hand. I do think that knowing how to do it as opposed to just cut and paste is, is very important. I, I remember when I had my office, I used to, before I'd hire somebody, I'd give them a, a stair opening and say, so design the stair without a computer. Just tell me how many treads and rises." you know what's you the had option? to turn a lot of people away didn't you oh yeah <laughs> yeah you know how,
1: I, I, you would have turned me away I, how do clear. you get the
0: clearance on a railing you know and yep. but again it's the, the kind of things if you if you use the code as your base it's all in there mm-hmm. you know three foot clearance but the handrail can intrude an inch and a half into that clearance what a world of difference that makes when you're you're doing a project yeah. Um, so I, I think it's, it's really interesting. I think that um, young people coming up today have a, a great curiosity, which is something that I really, really enjoy. Um, but I, I do believe that the more you see on the way up, the better off you'll be as, as you come up. I mean, um, many people start off in, in the architectural schools and they become interior designers, they become graphic designers, because it opens up so many windows to you that you c- can go through. Um, I was lucky. I just I just like to see things built, and I would like to understand how they go together. I find it interesting now that I can I can look at situations. We had a unfortunate situation of a building in East Boston that, um, you know, it's one of those things. I went out and I looked at it, and I, I got a report that a major piece of brick had fallen off the building. So I immediately went over there, and I'm looking at the building, and I'm looking at the way it was braced. Now, is this in your practice? Or no, as your... the commissioner. Okay, yeah. And I'm standing there and I'm looking at it and, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I knew right away that the bracing was absolutely wrong and the building was showing, you know, se- severe signs of fatigue. Um, the people that were involved didn't seem to know that. and That really concerns me because safety is, is our biggest thing. Um, at the end of the day, I said the building is going to be demolished. And big step to make, not something that I do lightly. But I worked with the demolition crew because I had done demolition as part of my life. And the prediction of how that building would come down based on the forces that we put on it was like clockwork. It came down a lot faster than I thought it was going to, but it, it fell exactly the way we wanted to. And clean. And clean. And yeah, yeah. no one was hurt and there was no other you know, uh, damage done to any of the other buildings. Um, that's the kind of stuff that you know, you'll only learn by learning how to build a brick wall. So you know what the flaws in the brick wall are. And in this case, we're able to take advantage of natural flaws in construction. Yeah,
1: this, not to cut you off, but there's actually a great book to read, Why Buildings Fall Down. Oh, you know,
0: know. And, yeah,
1: yeah, and then the, the, it's interesting that I think, I believe if I have it right, the follow-up is Why Buildings Stand Up.
0: Okay, I, right. I can believe that.
1: And uh, yeah, they get into some interesting stuff. They get into you know, the pyramids and mm-hmm. uh, how they learned that they might have understood pi. Yeah, you know, and all this kind of really interesting stuff, but that, that, that's a tangent. But yeah, the way. You but I see technologies
0: like like podium construction. I I'm not against podium construction. There's been some problems with it during construction, and rather than say no to podium construction because there were some people that wanted to do that, um, we looked at what are the problems and how can we resolve them. And some of it is better, you know, fire um, protection systems during construction, mm-hmm. things that we really hadn't looked at. You know, NFPA deals with, uh, you know, the 241, which is a living, breathing document. It's not static. At different points in your construction, there have to be different fire protection systems put into place, evacuation plans put into place. Um, I, for one, believe there should be a 241 on every project. I think most projects it's done. I'm taking down this stair to rebuild it on the front of my house. Well, how's Ma going to get out of the house with the stair gone? Oh, well, we're going to use the back stair, And that's the essence of a 241. Yeah. It gets far more complicated the more complex the building itself comes. But I do think podium construction is a sound construction. It's proved itself. Um, and I don't think that we should ever throw anything out without doing a full analysis of what possibilities are there. And as I say, it's great when the construction industry is partnering with the regulatory industry and we're coming up with concepts as opposed to The regulatory industry saying this is the way it's going to be. And then the construction industry having to live with it, knowing that one little change could have made such a big difference. Yeah,
1: I'll I'll tell you, you're right. It's been a combination on the regulatory front. People, communities, municipalities started asking for 241 plans. Mm -hmm. But once that happened, it was amazing, especially on the podium side of construction technology that came into the market absolutely like in east boston they're using m fire suppression it's a Mm spray-on product on the wood and lee kennedy is uh doing the sprinkle system as they're building yep. the wood frame Act-
0: activating it with
1: air rather than water yep so there's um, monitoring yep. tattletail pillar technologies all it these different sensors paint.
0: and flow uh, switches and everything that are monitoring i think a leaks. really good example of that is is the actual uh, the uh, massachusetts architectural access board um, i'm old enough to remember be- pre that before it existed and Massachusetts was one of the first to have its own handicap code. I was about to code say,
1: code. for the people that don't know AAB, yeah. what commonly referred to as a handicap code, right? right? Yeah. And
0: then there was you know, the courageous Vietnam veteran who actually formed the architectural access board, the, AA, the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, which Congress put into place. When that first came out, the, there was a lot of pushback about it. People didn't understand it. When you look at projects today and talk to developers and contractors today, it is so part of what we do. It's no longer an impediment. It's just part of what we do. It's just like another system that's gotta be put into the building. And you think about how good that makes things. I, you know, The idea of having a ramp to the entrance of a building. I don't think there's an ambulatory person in the world that wouldn't mind walking up a ramp versus a set of stairs. But to a non-ambulatory person, that access is normal. It's, you know, the proscenium of entrance into the building. It's the way it should be. And you get to achieve that as opposed to back in the 50s, you know, the, yeah, if you were in a wheelchair or in crutches, you could get up the stairs, but you had to go into the back door and take the freight elevator up. Yep. Um, so I think that those kinds of progress has happened. The idea of, of energy economy, the use of natural light, you know, that you get points now for more glass so that you have deeper penetration of natural light when you sit down and think about it, doesn't that just make sense? Yeah,
1: you should really, I bet you you would find fascinating the well-building standard. Um, it's really the, it's what I would say would be kind of the equivalent of lead, mm-hmm. but it's for um, the end user, just so they look at air quality, water quality, access to food, exercise. When you brought up light, right? Like the, all the damage that can be done from blue light and circadian rhythms. They take all this into effect, and and for me personally, I feel like that would drive me to a building more than just straight energy efficiency. Um, So you should look into that. There's the well-building standard, and then there's another competitor called FitWell. I know Um, FitWell, Well, And some interesting, um, Fannie Mae is now offering 0.15 basis point reduction in loans and affordable housing if you get FitWell certified which I think will really drive
0: the adoption of it. Back in the day, there's an architect, Le Corbusier, who did a lot of chapels, and he understood light. And he was like one of the first to really paint the inside of a light well to change the color of light. Hmm. But it didn't change anything. It just was the reflection. Uh, That was my first introduction to the fact that there were quality of lights. And then as an architect, I got to design a lot of houses for people. And I happened to have a lot of artists who were bases and, you know, some screen they had to have another light. It was the only kind of light that they could paint in. But that there were other ones that wanted their house to be alive in the movement of light. So all of these things, I think, are, are basic to most culture. You know, and the idea that solar energy actually started in the Egyptian period where they, during the day, they'd let the stones sit outside all night and bring them in. And, they and in heat. And, yeah. heat, and mm-hmm. then the, they'd leave the other stones out all night and bring them in in the morning, and you'd get cooling. Um, and I think a lot of this stuff is, is very fundamental, but technology has now taken it to such a place that, you know, I mean, my iPhone has, you know, luma readings, uh, re- meters, and um, decibel re- readings. So these are things that are so easy for us to analyze now, and the industry is really taking advantage of it. I mean, granular piles versus steel piles. You can put them right next to an existing building, and there's next to nothing for vibration. And not only does it compound vertically, it compounds horizontally. So once you get the piles in and you work off a structural slab, it's the same construction. The economy of that is unbelievable. But who would have thought we would have drilled a pipe into the ground, suck out the dirt, pound a bunch of rocks into it, and that would then be the foundation of the building. yeah. 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 And so, you know, helical piles was another invention that I saw that I just couldn't believe. People started using it just to reinforce, like, sidewalks and things that were falling down. And then somebody actually looked at their bearing capacity and said, oh, my God, I can almost put a building Mm -hmm. on this. You know, so... And it's great for rehabilitation. And economics, too. Yeah, it's... Much more affordable.
1: It's you know you just improve. It. They often call them ground improvements, yes. right? You're improving the ground rather than trying to build a foundation, and it, and, it, and it
0: makes so more so much more palatable to build in a congested area because we don't have pounding, yeah. You know that may go on for a month or two,
1: and odors and everything else associated with digging a giant hole. All right,
0: so. We're getting
1: pretty close to the end of the line. Mm-hmm. so let's make sure we get everybody off and talk a little code. make okay. the last uh, six people we have listen and make sure they go away. Um, anything you see with the ninth edition that's of interest or of note that people should be paying attention um, to?
0: There was a little bit of reorganization that I thought was interesting. I think uh, people really should read the administrative section thoroughly. I know at ISD it's mandatory, everybody reads that. Um, they've changed a lot. you know they really have the section really promulgated that says what you don't need a permit for. Uh, and I think that's invaluable so that people understand that. I also think the roles and responsibilities uh, of an inspector are really clearly defined in the, in the administrative section so that you know the building inspector cannot make you do things that aren't in the building code, uh, which is something that I have fought with for years and years and years. Uh, but I, I do think that the organization of the code is better Um, they've made some, you know, some minor changes. The um, energy statements now are going up because they're getting more in line, at least in Massachusetts with the stretch code. So that's getting better. Um, Fire protection systems, although higher on the um, early warning systems side, but a little more workable on the sprinkler side, Mm -hmm. um, which we all know that that's, you know, so expensive and potentially so programmatic. Um, I think they've been a lot more logical about the wind loads because they've defined it pretty close to, you know, by street, uh, <laughs> what your wind loads are. And I think people are starting to understand that. And it's, I think it's well articulated in, in the code. I think this one has less uh, reference and more meat to the zoning itself. Of course, I always wrestle with the Massachusetts amendments, which is almost as thick as the building code itself. But, That's our structure, and and, and we live with that. But I I think um, IBC has done a wonderful job at making the language the same for everybody. Uh, Much like the Uniform Building Code did in 75 for Massachusetts, IBC is doing for the world. Yeah.
1: So let's sneak in two more things, because we do have a little more time. Additional dwelling unit program. Oh, my favorites. And then I want to talk about something that's really fascinating. Another thing we didn't get to today is... um, kind of ISD of the city kind of as a whole, seems like it's changed. It used to be um, very institutional or, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for, transactional. Mm -hmm. Um, Now you just look at the different social media profiles, the visibility in places, it's it's really changed. It seems like you guys are much more out in front and being proactive rather than transactional and reactive. so, if you can if you can try and yeah. bundle all that together very quickly, the ADU
0: yeah. is again um, the uh, housing lab uh, that the mayor put together. Um, it makes sense um, because w- what you're able to do is, if you can stay within the confines of the geometry of the building and carve out another unit that meets meets code, then you can have it. But does it? So it cannot meet zoning, but
1: it meets the building code exactly, and you're good.
0: All right. You know, what I looked at and, you know, floor area ratio, I have very distinct feelings about zoning. Should it be massing or dimensional? Ours is a little bit of both, I think is, is a little bit uh, difficult to uh, work with. But with the ADU, if you have an attic that in most people do, you know, in old Victorian houses, they have stairs to go up to the attic front and back. Okay. Why shouldn't that be living space? I completely
1: agree. And now let's do this. Let's take all the other questions that is threw off yeah. the table. Mm-hmm. Let's just say additional dwelling unit. But I want people to learn. So ADA, additional dwelling unit. Mm-hmm. Um, you also said FAR, which is Florida area ratio. Yes. So meaning, the size of your lot, depending on where you're on the city, can determine how many square feet of living space you can have. Right, right? It's a direct proportion. Yes. Yep. And then the last thing that people should know is this: it, the additional dwelling unit program is a pilot. Right now, yeah. And it's taking place in... East Boston, Mattapan, and Jamaica Plain. Okay. Now that we got those baselines, yeah. uh, let's go back to... You've got an attic. You've got two sets okay. of stairs going up there. You've got sailing height. Why yeah. shouldn't you be able to build there, right?
0: One, one, one thing I do want to say, though, is the ADU was a, a, a very designed program to keep people in our neighborhoods. And, and the perfect example was we went back to South Boston to talk to a lot of people that sold their homes. Why did you sell your home? It's your family home. You've owned it. You know, for 60 years. Um, they lived on a fixed income. The cost of living was going up. Um, somebody comes in and offers them a million dollars for their home. At the time, the million dollars seems like a lot. They take it they move on. A lot of them told us, in retrospect, that if they could get a little more disposable income, things would make sense. If my son is looking for a house but can't stay in Boston because he can't afford it. Uh, My mother, you know, uh, needs a place to live and needs a little assistance, but, you know, I can't afford to bring her into a nursing home in Boston. So this was a way for us to economically enhance the people that lived in the neighborhood. For the most part, they're not the million-dollar condos that we see going up everywhere. Um, It allows people that lived in the neighborhood to stay in the neighborhood. Um, There is usually a ton of space in houses if you really look at them. Um, basements. There, there are so many illegal basement apartments in the city of Boston. Um, this was a way to legalize them, and in a lot of ways, make it a lot safer, so that the building actually met code. Uh, also allows us to let the fire department know that that building has a basement unit, mm-hmm. so you know that'll save lives. We've heard tragic stories. The one in Quincy is the one that bothers me the most, where you know a number of people were actually killed because no one knew that they had a unit there and there were egress problems. So this is a way to embrace what we already have and as i say to the the far i understand why it's done it makes sense to me but i don't understand if i am not uh, impacting the massing or density of a neighborhood why i should have that additional living area seeing as it's already built you know you can't take a basement that has a six foot ceiling and turn it into a unit you can't lay out a living unit that has the boiler in the middle of it for the house um, you know, you're your ex- you have to meet the building code. You have to meet the building code yeah. to include sprinkler. Yeah. So that if you go from a two, the only units that are allowed are one, two, and three uh, families, you're allowed to add one unit. If you go from a two to a three, you go from a residential to a commercial building, so you do have to introduce sprinklers. You can use compartmentalized sprinklers that just the unit gets sprinkled, but you've got to upgrade the fire alarm in the whole building. Okay. And same thing with going from a three yeah. to a four.
1: Now, does it get a change of occupancy?
0: Yes. Part of the, the, the pilot program is that if you qualify, one very, very important thing, too, it's got to be owner-occupied. Yes. It cannot be an investment property. So um, in our pilot program, what we said is anybody who qualifies, and there's a committee that reviews because there's no standard for this because every each one of them is so unique. So there's a committee made up of um, the housing lab, BPDA, ISD, We sit and review each one of the projects as they come up. And if they qualify, quite literally, some of the sketches are very crude. They're able to walk out with a building permit. Um, And if you get it during the pilot program, you're allowed to keep it. If we find out the pilot program is for 18 months and we're about halfway through, um, we find out it doesn't work and we decide to to abandon it. If we gave you this zoning change, then you got the zoning change and you were good. Um, if you sell your property and it's not going to be home, home owner-occupied, uh, you're going to lose that ADU unit. Uh, we maintain this through the rental registry program because that you have to qualify every year and re-enter all your data, the ownership and everything else like that. So there's a cross-reference of data. That's where, I mean, data at, at the city now is, is something that for the first couple of years, all we did was gather data. Now we're using it. And it's, it's really very interesting. All right. This is all exciting. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Commissioner, thanks for coming out. Thanks for all inviting right. me, Joe. Right. Take care. All right, thanks.
1: Hey, everyone. Can't thank you enough for listening to the show. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you loved what you heard. Um, if you did, if you wouldn't mind heading over to SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever it is that you listen, and give us a rating. It would help us to get heard, which would be huge. Keep this thing going. Um, if you want to get more involved... Head over to massconstruction.org. You can see what we do there. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook, all from that page, whatever your medium is that you prefer. Uh, And last thing I got to say is thank you, thank you, thank you.